welcome to Fantastic History. I'm Sarah. And I'm Clay. We're a husband and wife duo who enjoy telling each other about amazing events, people, and mysteries throughout history. I'm very excited about today's story because it's one I'd never heard anything about before. So all of this was brand new information for me. It's an exciting tale of karmic justice and a rags-to-riches heroine. Uh, My sources were an article from Medium by Lauren Henley and an article from This Land Press by Steve Gherkin, as well as a video from the YouTube channel Forgotten Lives, all of which will be linked in the show notes. Okay. And before we move on, um, yes, I am recovering from laryngitis. Do not adjust your speakers. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's been pretty bad. So I'm going to start us off with some not fantastic history. Prior to the end of the Civil War, there were Africans who were enslaved by Native American tribes. Really? Yeah, that was something I had never heard before in my entire life. Um, When slavery was abolished, though, they were freed, of course. But instead of becoming federal United States citizens, they were considered free citizens of their respective tribal nations. Hmm. So they were then recorded on something called the Dawes Rolls. The government used that list for the General Allotment Act of 1887 to subdivide Native American land. So as explained in The Settlement of America by Kent Blansett and James Crutchfield, this basically meant that indigenous people were being forced to, quote unquote, assume a capitalist and proprietary relationship with property, which was very much not part of their culture before this, like. I mean, we learned that as kids from Disney's Pocahontas, like you don't own the land. Yeah. Yep. Um, So I'm sure you're wondering, like, for what possible reason did they do this? Well, it's just as gross and bleak as you'd expect. Uh, The government determined that Native Americans had more land than they actually needed. Oh, I see. Yeah. So they claimed a huge portion of it to give to white settlers. Some parcels in what was becoming Oklahoma were then set aside to dole out to tribes local to that area with the caveat that much of it would be given to Muscogee Freedmen miners as payment, referring essentially to the children of the people registered on the Dawes Rolls, the freed Africans who had been enslaved by the tribes. Yeah. So any land that didn't get parceled out, you know, anything left over, the tribes were invited to sell that land to the government. If you're wondering what would compel the tribes to sell what little land they had left, it's worth mentioning that uh, all of the really nice fertile land was given to the white people and all of the rocky inhospitable land that could not possibly be used for farming was what was given to the tribes. Mm. Yeah, makes sense. So the whole thing was even more problematic than it sounds, which of course tracks with the rest of American history. But that's actually not what we're here to talk about. I just wanted to go ahead and throw in that little explainer before we meet our heroine. That being said, if anybody out there in Radioland wants to hear more about the General Allotment Act, shoot us an email at fantastichistorypod at gmail.com. And I'll put together a real episode about it because there is a ton of information and it's all awful. Mm, Yeah. Now, with all of that explained, I'd like to introduce you to a little girl named Sarah Rector. Oh, Sarah was born on March 3rd of 1902 to Muskogee Freedmen Joseph and Rose Rector. Along with her parents and three siblings, she lived on a farm outside of Taft, Oklahoma, an all-black town in indigenous territory. The Rector farm produced cotton, which the entire family harvested, and it was backbreaking work. 
even though all six of them were working in their field, they were still barely scraping by and had two mortgages on their farm. Mm. Whenever they needed to go into town several miles away or the children needed to go to school, walking was their only means of conveyance because they couldn't afford anything else. Like they had horses, but those were work horses. Yeah. One poor crop or natural disaster would take them out. So living in the heart of Jim Crow America in the early 1900s meant that the rector children didn't exactly have much hope of a better life for themselves. For Sarah, if she was lucky, she might be able to get a job at an underfunded, segregated school, but her more likely options were either field work or working in someone else's house. Mm-hmm. To make matters worse, each of the rector children had been given the land allotments I was telling you about because Sarah, her grandparents on both sides of the family um, had been enslaved by the Muskogee tribe. So while on the surface, it might sound like a good thing because, hey, it's free land. It wasn't actually free, which is oh. another another little feather in the cap of the uh, evil villain government. Because with the insidious provenance of it, you know, if free land still sounded too good to be true, that's because it was. Even though they didn't have to buy the land, Joe Rector was still expected to pay the $30 taxes on it every year, which may not sound like much, but that comes out to about $900 in 2022 money. Mm, And that's per land parcel. And four of his kids had land parcels. That's a lot of money. It is a lot of money. So this family who already has next to nothing, they're shelling out property taxes on several parcels of land every year, including the farm they, they live on. Yeah. So to make matters worse, Sarah's allotment was on the rocky banks of the Cimarron River, nearly 60 miles away from the family farm, which made it not only worthless for farming, but almost impossible for them to actually get to. So you're probably wondering why the rectors didn't just sell their land. Well, they tried. Hmm. On more than one occasion, Joe petitioned the Muskogee County Court to let them get rid of all of the allotments, or at least one of them or at least parts of some of them. But they kept telling him no over and over again, with one exception. In early 1910, he was allowed to sell his oldest daughter, Rebecca's land, for about $1,700, but he was stuck with the other three. One of the reasons they gave for this was that the land didn't belong to Joe. It belonged to Sarah and his other children, and they were minors who weren't legally able to sell their property. Okay. So you can't get rid of it and you have to keep paying this huge tax bill on it every year. And there's nothing you can do unless you want to go to jail. And then I I would assume if you didn't pay your property taxes, they would just take it and you wouldn't get anything for it. They'd take it. You wouldn't get anything for it and you'd you'd be arrested. So you're kind of stuck. There's nothing you can do. It's they I mean, it was just really another way of screwing people over, giving them this free land. Mm -hmm. But like. What do you have to complain about? We gave you all this, you know. <sighs> so even though he was their father, he had no rights. Um, even if he it, he had to keep paying the bill, but he had no rights to the property at all. I genuinely cannot imagine the frustration yeah. he must have felt. And again, I mean, they had to get a second mortgage on their farm. Like, and you're dealing with all of this. Like, it's horrible. In 1911, though, he came up with a plan that didn't need government permission and would offset the cost of the tax bill. The rectors leased Sarah's 150-acre plot of land to the Standard Oil Company. 
This was an ideal situation because the lease payments covered the taxes. Plus, Sarah would earn a royalty if any oil was actually found on the property. So the heavy burden was suddenly lifted. Just just like that. Two and a half years passed pretty uneventfully. They were making the payments no problem. They weren't really having to think about it anymore. Hmm. I mean, it was great. But the rectors were reminded of Sarah's land when news came from the Standard Oil Company on August 23rd, 1913. They'd struck a gusher. Oh. In an instant, Sarah Rector went from being impoverished to being known all over the world as the richest black girl in America. Wow. Approximately 2,500 barrels of oil were being pulled from her land every day. Just from that initial gusher. Eventually, there would be about 50 oil wells found on her property. It was, at the time... (laughs) the highest producing site in one of the biggest oil fields in the entire country. It outperformed the well-known Glen pool site just outside of Tulsa. And where, where is this again? It's, just um, reminder. it's about, it's outside of Tulsa, basically on, on the banks of the Cimarron river. Okay. So just a couple of years ago, you know, her father is struggling to pay these $30 property taxes, but now Sarah is earning $114,000 a year which is equal to $3.5 million today. Dang. Every year. Wow. But of course, things are going to get shitty again because we're talking about black and indigenous people in America in the early 1900s. Now, this is so gross and so horrible, but as soon as you hear me say it, you're going to be like, well, of course. So the law at the time stated that any child of color who had significant money or property would have to be assigned a respectable white guardian to manage their wealth. Wow. Yup. So this was the point in the story where I wanted to start screaming and just never stop screaming. Uh huh. Like this is a real thing. Like the government isn't even good at being a villain. Like they don't seem to understand that you're not supposed to be right out in the open tweedling your little greasy mustache yeah, for the whole world to see. Like you're supposed to do that after everyone's back is turned, man. Um, yeah, but yeah, I mean, Hey, look, we gave you this seemingly worthless land so that you'd have to pay us the taxes on it. And now that it's worth something, we're going to find a way to seize control of it one way or the other. Like, yeah. Under no circumstance are you allowed to benefit from this? Yeah. Like, I'm, I'm ready to throw hands with somebody over this, truly. Like, I will dig up a body and punch it in the face. Um, approximately 140 other freedmen miners found themselves in a similar position, with their land allotments being leased to oil companies, because it's Oklahoma. So, of course, they're finding oil, you know, left, right, and center. In early 1910, the Muskogee Times Democrat reported that many of these children wound up abandoned in orphanages when their white guardians and sometimes even their own parents dumped them there in order to take full advantage of the royalties they were receiving. Mm. The least fortunate of these kids were outright murdered for their money, while the best that many others could have hoped for was having their money stolen from them little by little through fraudulent bookkeeping. Yeah. Sarah's appointed white guardian, T.J. Porter was someone the family had prior dealings with. Um, And in some sources, he's described as actually being a benefactor of the Rector family and someone that her parents personally chose to look out for her. Um, If you find yourself subject to this incredibly racist scenario and have to have a financial guardian, TJ's probably not the worst guy to have on your case. 
Um, the standard guardian fee at the time was between two and 6% of the minor's annual income. But in the first year he collected about $900, which was a lot less than 2% of right. her income. So yeah. uh, with that being said, a few years down the road, TJ Porter and his personal attorney, Edward Kurd, were taken to court over accusations that they were taking way more than they had earned from Sarah. TJ was found not guilty, but he was still forced to step down from his guardianship role. The lawyer, however, was caught with his hand in the cookie jar. It came to light that he'd been taking kickbacks from real estate deals made in Sarah's name to the tune of $8,500. I couldn't find anything that said he did jail time, but he was disbarred for it. Mm -hmm. You know, more like Edward Turd. Am I right? (laughs) 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 with her first royalty check sarah bought herself a new outfit new shoes and a new open top buggy to take her to school every day hey yeah she i mean she was riding in style as more and more money started to roll in the family was able to build bigger barns and chicken coops a new water well and a huge smokehouse off of their kitchen I mean, just like a few months later, they started work on building like a two-story house for themselves, and they filled it with brand new store-bought furniture, which was unheard of in Taft, like, which again, Mm. it was an all-black town, and they were the only family with store-bought furniture. Wow. It was a huge deal. Sarah purchased beautiful new wardrobes for herself, her parents, and her siblings, most luxurious of all, music-loving Sarah was able to purchase a phonograph and a piano for their home. In her article, Lauren Henley noted that the piano itself was worth more money than most black families made in an entire year. Wow. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Of course, this all got a massive amount of media attention. Oh, sure. Newspapers as far away as Australia and the Netherlands were reporting on Sarah's story. Of course, the further away from Oklahoma these newspapers were, the more wildly inaccurate the stories became. By the time her story reached the west coast of America, it had already gotten skewed enough that it was reported that Sarah still lived in a shack and slept in an armchair with her six siblings. And also her father had died in prison and the state of Oklahoma had her legally declared white. So that's that's a lot of sensationalism. And that was just in America. Like yeah. I can't imagine what they're saying over in Australia and the Netherlands. That's, just Yeah, the story had already changed so much. Yeah, because, well, and of course they're not sending, you know... They're not sending an Australian reporter to Taft, Oklahoma to like actually get the facts. They're just kind of playing a game of telephone with all this. So everything is getting skewed and crazy. Mm -hmm. None of none of that stuff is true, of course, although the stupidest one of all, um, the idea that she had been declared legally white isn't too far from the truth. Oh, Within her first year of wealth, there actually was an attempt by the local government to have Sarah declared white so that she could ride in the first class car on trains. Okay. (laughs) Yeah. Well, so. Because she was rich, they wanted to give her more rights. They wanted to give her more rights because she was rich, but they couldn't because she was also black. Yep. So the wealth meant more it's confusing. Yeah, money is more important than people, always. Yeah. And especially if you're a person of color, always. Oh, yeah. I guess it's also kind of interesting that that once she had this money, that I guess that kind of proves in a way that at least some were like, 
suddenly they respected her enough yep. to give her those rights. People were petitioning for it. They're like, well, if she has all this money and status, but a lot of it was because people are massive racists and they were uncomfortable with the fact of her being black and perceived as better than them because of her money. Yeah. So even if you look at, I mean, she was not a light skinned girl. So you would never look at her and think, oh, she's white. Like, so it was just a matter of like, we'd, we'd like that on the paperwork so that, you know, legally there's not a black person who has a better life than me. That's so confusing. It's, yeah. I mean, thank God I don't understand that. I would hate yeah. for my mind to work that way. And, yeah. If there's one inevitability in this world, it's that striking it rich means having every jackhole on the planet knocking on your door, wanting a piece of the pie. Oh, for sure. So that was, you know, another thing you're having to deal with on top of all the racism and all of the media attention. And again, she's 11 years old. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, you're also having all these people come begging. Uh, so this was something that Sarah dealt with, of course, for the rest of her life. From the time she was 11 years old until her death. Even at the age of 11, she had scores of men of every race and age from all over the world writing to her with proposals of marriage. To quote from Lauren Henley again, and this is so horrifying, so so get your vomit sacks ready because this is the worst. The secretary of a men's matrimony club geared toward making matches in the black community called dibs on Sarah for himself. Mm. An 11-year-old girl, a child. Yeah. Uh, it's it's wild if unsurprising yeah wild yeah there's also the matter of course always of the spider-man credo with great power (laughs) comes great responsibility (laughs) as unfair and inappropriate as it was with her being thrust onto the world stage sarah was now expected to represent the whole of her race anytime she was in the public eye anything she did right was a credit to the black and indigenous communities Whereas anything that was less than perfect, well, I'm sure you can guess how thoroughly that was frowned upon. She took all of this to heart because honestly, how could you not when you're that young and impressionable? To this end, she paid for herself and her older sister, Rebecca, to attend the prestigious Tuskegee Normal and Industrial Institute's Children's School in Alabama. Okay. Margaret Murray Washington, the recent widow of Booker T. Washington, ran the girls' school at this elite all-black academy, and she took Sarah and Rebecca under her wing. This was the calmest period of Sarah's life, the only time she was really allowed to be a normal kid after the oil strike. She got to know other black kids from all over the country, and she got to spend time with her sister, and her parents came up to visit her when they were able to, and they had the privacy of being on, you know, private property. It It was a great time in her life. Um, In 1917, Sarah and Rebecca then went on to attend Fisk University in Nashville as a prep school before enrolling in high school in Kansas City, Missouri, where her family had moved to escape all the attention they were getting in Oklahoma. Her favorite subjects in school were algebra and home ec, and she spent her free time on photography, music, and driving her car. (laughs) During this time, her land was generating about 160,000 barrels of oil per month. She received 8% royalties on this, which meant her share came out to about $18,000 every month. Compare that to the average household income at the time. And this, you know, is not the average black household income, but the average household income at the time was $60 a month. 
and she was making eighteen thousand a month. Wow! So it, it's it's almost an unbelievable amount of money. Like you can't even yeah. un, you can't even believe how much this girl's yes. making. Yes, and she is still a teenager. Oh man! And to really put that in perspective, today that would be over half a million dollars she was banking every single month. Yeah, that that's can't even fathom. That. No. No. And that's, I mean, all of that is just for owning a piece of land that was considered worthless. Yeah. Tensions rose as she got closer and closer to her 18th birthday, when she would finally have some control over her own wealth. More and more people were popping out of the woodwork every day, offering marriage or advice or just begging. At one point, her own mother was convinced um, by outsiders that Sarah wouldn't be able to take care of her estate on her own, that there was something causing her to be mentally unsound, um, and that she should be declared legally incompetent. Oh, come on. Uh Uh-huh. When the big day finally came on her 18th birthday, Sarah shocked the world by relinquishing her control entirely. Oh. A lot of people took this as proof that she was too ignorant to manage her own affairs, which was something that had been said for years, mm-hmm. uh, purely because she was black. Yeah. Um, and others, you know, were just joking about her being a millionaires for three hours. But this ruse has also been a ruse. Unsurprisingly, a lot of infighting had been going on behind the scenes amongst the various trustees who had been managing her wealth since TJ Porter was kicked off the case. There were some who favored Sarah having total control when she reached adulthood and others who, well, they were less scrupulous, we'll say. Now, by seeming to totally step away from her money, Sarah was able to delegate control only to the guardians who were on her side. And those guardians turned right around and gave every single cent to her. 100% of her wealth now belonged to her. She was the only person in control, the only person who got a say. She was free. Nice. Sarah used her money to fund the education of her family members, to see to the comfort and whims of the people she loved, and to invest in real estate and land development. One particular property that she acquired was the Fike Building back in Muskogee, Oklahoma. It took up an entire city block in the heart of downtown. Its first floor accommodated six separate storefronts, while the upper levels operated as a boarding house. The previous owner, Bob Fike, had refused to let any black-owned businesses operate on the premises, but now the whole property was owned by a black woman, and he can go eat shit. In 1921, she purchased a brick mansion on the corner of 12th and Euclid in Kansas City. The following year, at the age of 20, she married local businessman Kenneth Campbell in a private ceremony attended only by her mother and his grandmother. They went on to have three sons before divorcing after about a decade. After another four years, she married a restaurant owner named William Crawford. There's comparatively little drama around Sarah's money once it became hers and hers alone. She continued collecting fast cars, owning multiple Lincolns, Cadillacs, and Rolls Royces. (laughs) At one point, she and her first husband, Kenneth, opened a Hupmobile car dealership in the Black Entertainment District of Kansas City. Not only because Sarah loved cars, but also because (laughs) most dealerships at the time were owned by white people. Meaning that because of segregation laws, it was difficult, if not impossible, for black people to visit the lots, and they were banned from test driving cars. Wow. But not at Sarah's. Another. So, so, there, so there, there, there's your audience right there. Yeah. 
<laughs> yeah, you you have the market. You are the only car dealership that black people are allowed to come to for a test drive. The only one. There you go. Wow. Yeah. And Kansas City, I believe, is the capital of Missouri. Or it's one of the, maybe not, one of the largest cities, certainly, yeah. in the Midwest. And you're the only one. It's pretty good. Oh, yeah. Another place where she spent a ton of money was on her wardrobe, which was overflowing with luxurious clothes. There were some department stores where they typically only allowed white customers that would shut down the entire store and let Sarah and her family shop for as long as they wanted. One of her favorite ways to spend her money, though, was on parties. She threw frequent, lavish parties for leading members of the black community, parties which often featured live jazz music from the likes of Count Basie and Duke Ellington. Wow. Oh, yeah. Sarah's was the place to be, (laughs) for sure. There aren't nearly as many details about her adulthood as we have about her early years, which is a bummer because that would have been much more fun to talk about. Um, But she, you know, got real tired of the press as a child and did everything in her considerable power to keep her life private as she got older. We do know that she lost quite a lot of money when the stock market crashed and America entered the Great Depression. She sold her mansion and moved to a more modest home, then started selling off her other real estate investments as she lost more and more money. In 1932, she even sold the land allotment in Oklahoma that started it all. I guess by then it wasn't still bringing in enough money to justify the cost of keeping it. Mm -hmm. Her fortunes took a final turn for the good, though, in 1946, when the Indian Claims Commission investigated several claims of fraud and misuse on the government-claimed land. Sarah received restitutions for this, though the amount she got isn't known because she didn't advertise it. Mm -hmm. She used that money, though, to buy a farmhouse a few miles outside of Kansas City with plenty of room for all of her Cadillacs and Lincolns to graze because, yes, she most definitely held on to her beloved cars. (laughs) She sold everything else, but not a single one of her cars. (laughs) 20 years later, in July of 1967, Sarah Rector died of a stroke at the age of 63. After a service in Kansas City, her body was sent home to Taft, Oklahoma, where she's buried next to her parents in the Black Jack Cemetery. And that's the story of Sarah Rector. Wow, that is a great story. It's great. And she, so one place that I couldn't like quite find the perfect spot for it, but Sarah and her cars, she loved to drive fast like as you would imagine with like she's buying these luxury cars and she is tearing ass like all over town whenever she feels like it and she got pulled over a lot and like this is a black woman being pulled over by white policemen so you know of course that's gonna make you feel a little like oh dear god but um the vast majority of the time probably 90 percent or better of the time they'd pull her over and um you know, ma'am, do you know how fast you were going? And she would reply, do you know who I am? I'm Sarah Rector. And they would let her go. Oh, my gosh. Oh, yeah. (laughs) A lot of the time, like if her family was, you know, anybody that her family, friends, anybody who was in legal trouble, um, she would go up to the jail to like pick them up, bail them out. And she would walk up to the counter and just say, I'm here for so-and-so. I'm Sarah Rector. Like, that's all she had to say most of the time. I'm Sarah Rector. And just to be, you know, in the 1920s and to be a black woman in a predominantly white town in the Midwest and that all you have to say is your name. 
Like I love her story so much. Like just this little bright spot in a very dark time. Yeah. Wonderful. I love her story so much. Yeah. I guess it just goes to show also that through it, despite all of the, uh, just despite discrimination and, and racism and all this, if you got money, you got power. Oh yeah. And that has always been true. People care more about money than people. Yeah. Especially the government. The government doesn't, the government will never care about people. They care about their money. And yeah. I think that is becoming more and more obvious every year, you know. Well, but, that was a great story. Oh, oh, thank you. That one made me so happy. Um, hopefully you guys liked it too. Thanks for checking us out today and giving us a little bit of your time. Um, if you liked that story, you know, we've got almost 20 other episodes for you to go back and listen to if you haven't heard them yet. Uh, if you like that, you like what we're doing, take a second to rate, review, and subscribe on whatever pa- uh, podcast platform you're using right now. You can also check us out on Instagram and Twitter at FantasticHPod. You can drop us a line at FantasticHistoryPod at gmail.com if you know of any amazing events, people, and mysteries throughout history you'd like us to cover, or if you just want to say hello. And we'll see you next week. Bye.